following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So we've tracked through a lot of Exodus now, and we come this morning to chapter 32. And while you're opening up to the chapter 32, let me just say, this is really the low point in the whole book. This is, this is the darkest moment in the whole book of Exodus. Uh, spiritually speaking, the lowest point. Morally, the lowest point. Uh, in terms of God's relationship with Israel, the, the absolute rock bottom. Uh, it's the most tragic scene in the whole book of Exodus. Tragic not because of something that happens to Israel. There's been a lot of tragic things that have happened to them as slaves. But this is tragic, especially tragic, because it's something Israel chooses to do that really leads to their own downfall, leads to their own demise. So Exodus 32, and this is, I want to read the whole chapter. It's quite a long chapter, but I'd like us to read this because I want us to feel the weight of it. I do want us to feel the gravity of this situation. So there's about 35 verses here, but let's just ease into this and see this as an act of worship, uh, reading scripture together. Uh, I'll read this and then we'll make a few observations on it. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. Notice there he says, your people. It's not my people anymore. Your people have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. And they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with such great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. And do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. 
When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and he burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what had happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. It's a great excuse, isn't it? Out came this calf. I don't know where it came from. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. pretty sobering story even where the story is placed in the book of exodus shows what a tragedy it is just before the story leading up to it you have the story of the tabernacle the story all about god's presence with his people the tabernacle is all god's desire to be with israel to be among israel have a space where israel can worship god this is the build-up and then suddenly the golden calf Suddenly, the story, and it's meant to be jarring. And the whole flow, if you're reading Exodus from the beginning, this story would stop you in your tracks. It's supposed to leave us speechless. It's supposed to leave us asking, how can it possibly be? After the Red Sea, after the plagues, after the manna, after the water from the rock, after God's revelation on Mount Sinai, after the Ten Commandments, that you get this. How is it possible? That these people, God's people, who have just entered into a covenant with him, can so quickly turn to utter apostasy, complete abandonment of God. And then we look in our own lives, and it's not so hard to believe. We'll come to that in a minute. But it's, it's helpful, I think, to understand a little bit of how this situation arises within Israel. 
Moses has been gone for 40 days. He's been up on the mountain with God, receiving the law. And the Israelites don't know what's happened to him. They wonder, has something happened to Moses? Maybe he's fallen off a ledge somewhere. Maybe he's injured himself. Maybe he's not coming back. They start to wonder. And that's a big problem for Israel because Moses is the only contact point they have for God. He's the mediator. They have, they've got no other way of accessing God. They've got no other way of relating to, communing to God. I mean, they've, they've just begged Moses, you speak to us for God. Don't let God speak to us himself. So Moses is the only one they've got who represents God. If they've lost Moses, they've lost God. It's a major problem for Israel. And so they come to Aaron, who's the next leader in line after Moses, Moses' brother, and they say, Aaron, we need you to make us some gods who will go before us. What they're wanting, their motivation at this point, is not to give up worshipping God. At least at the beginning, that's not their motivation. They're not completely abandoning Yahweh. What they're wanting really is a touch point for God. What they're wanting is some physical representation of God because they don't know where he is. They don't know how to get him back. They need something they can see and feel and touch. They need a God that they can hold in their hand or at least bow down and worship. And so they say to Aaron, make us something. Give us some kind of physical representation of God who we can worship. And so Aaron says, right, take off your, your gold jewelry. Bring all the ornaments to me. He takes them, he melts them down in the fire, and he creates this calf or this young bull, statue of a young bull overlaid with gold. Now, why a bull or a calf? Probably because back in Egypt, bulls and calves were deities considered to be gods. They were considered to be objects of worship. And the Bible actually says that when Israel spent time in Egypt, it was 400 years that they were there. Many of them were idolaters. In other words, many of them didn't remain faithful to God at all as they understood him. Many of them just engaged in the practices of, of the Egyptians. And they worshipped the Egyptian gods, including bulls and cows. So at this point, when Israel needs a God that they can see and touch and feel, it's the most natural thing in the world for them to default back to the gods that they worshipped back in Egypt, bulls and cows. And so you, even if their motivation at the beginning was to try and remain faithful to God, but just in some tangible form, already by making this animal overlaid with God, they have drifted far, far away from God's intentions, and they are worshipping something that God has absolutely nothing to do with. They've broken not only the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, but now they've broken the second. You shall not make an image and bow down and worship it. The saddest words, I think, in the whole chapter are the words that Israel says, the Israelites say, once they've made this calf, they've got the statue there, Aaron's fashioned it for them. And then they say, in the, at the end of verse 4, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Can you just imagine how much that would have grieved the heart of God to hear that? Here's God up on Mount Sinai, meeting with Moses, giving him the law, giving him the Ten Commandments, giving him the, the instructions for the tabernacle. And God hears from down below in the camp, the Israelites, in front of this cow, saying, Here are your gods, O Israel, who led you out of Egypt. How devastated must God have been? How enraged must God have been? that their people, his people, have completely abandoned him, completely forsaken him. And then it gets worse. Then Aaron announces 
Tomorrow, there's going to be a festival to the Lord. Now notice, when Aaron says that, you have a look in your Bibles, he uses the word Yahweh, or the translation Lord. So Aaron, in some sense here, is still holding on to the one true God. Aaron kind of comes across in this chapter like a bit of a weak-willed person. In one sense, he's trying to keep the people faithful to God. In another sense, he's being completely swayed by what they're wanting. But he says, oh, okay, tomorrow we're going to have a festival to Yahweh. Let's keep worshipping him. But instead of worshipping him properly... Aaron just makes an altar in front of the cow, in front of the golden calf. And the people just bring sacrifices and offer them on the altar to the golden calf. God is just spending all his time with Moses, giving him instructions for how worship is to happen. For what the altar is, to, God is being incredibly specific about the conditions of how Israel can worship him. And Aaron just makes this makeshift altar in front of the golden calf, the people just offer who knows what sacrifices and who knows what manner. And then you get this very indicting verse there after that, which says the people sat down to eat and then they stood up to engage in revelry. And the Hebrew word for revelry has overtones of sexual immorality, which probably again means the Israelites have defaulted back to the pagan worship practices of Egypt and other ancient peoples around them, where the animal pagan sacrifices were accompanied by acts of sexual immorality. So what has happened here in the space of a few chapters, Israel's gone from worshipping God at the foot of Mount Sinai, beholding his glory, to being absolutely indistinguishable from the nations around them. Just worshipping the same kinds of gods in the same kinds of ways and completely giving up their allegiance to Yahweh. It's unbelievable. But before we are too harsh on Israel, we've got to look at ourselves, eh? got to look at our own lives. We've got to ask, really. The story forces us to ask, should force us to ask, are we any different? Are our lives really that much different from what Israel is doing here? We can look at this story and we can say, well, this is clearly an instance of idolatry. This is the worship of idols. But then we can look at our own life and say, well, I don't do that. I don't have a golden calf in my bedroom. I don't remember the last time I offered a goat on an altar to a pagan God. We don't do that. So we can think, well, idolatry, you know, this is a practice that the ancient peoples engaged in. These primitive peoples did this kind of thing. They bowed down before statues. But I would say that idolatry is perhaps even more prevalent in our culture today because it's harder to detect. If it was just a case of worshipping golden calves, then you could see it and you could name it and you could call it for what it is. But idolatry is subtle. It's devious. Often it takes place deep within the human heart and we don't see it and we can barely even discern when it's happening in our lives. To understand what idolatry is in the Bible, to understand what an idol is, we need to step back. We need to understand what a human being is to start with. We need to understand that as human beings, we are fundamentally worshippers. It's basic to who we are. You have been worshipping all week long. You don't have to stand in church and sing songs to worship. You've been worshipping all week. You've been worshipping someone. been worshipping something. We are worshippers. We are fundamentally desiring beings. Desiring creatures. We're not just rational creatures thinking our way through life. We're not just bodily creatures feeling our way through life. We are loving creatures who love our way through life. We are defined by what our hearts love. Our hearts have inclinations and attractions. They have affections and longings and desires and our hearts will attach themselves to things and people around us all the time and we will make those things objects of our worship. 
See, we've got kind of surface-level things that we love. You've got, you've got stuff you love in your life, right? You've got things you love. You love hokey-pokey ice cream. You love whatever, walks along the beach. You love summer, right? That's kind of surface-level loves. Yep, we're tracking. And then you've got deeper loves. You love your kids. You love your spouse. You love sports. You know, often we use the word passion in that context. These deeper, I'm passionate about music. I'm passionate about my kids. That's good. Those are good things. And then at the deepest level, our hearts have ultimate loves. Those things that our hearts love more than anything else. And I don't just mean things that you feel emotionally attracted to. You may or may not feel any particular thing. This is deeper than emotions. This is the deepest cravings and longings of your being. Ultimate loves. The things our hearts are most drawn to. The things that most capture our affections. Those are our ultimate loves. Just maybe one or two or three of them. And those things are the things that we worship. And I don't just mean worship like singing songs to them. I mean worship like orientating our lives around them. Whatever it is you love the most, whatever it is that is the ultimate love in your life, that thing, that person, that whatever, you will gravitate towards it. You will. You are right now. Inescapably, you will gravitate. Your time will go there. Your money will flow that way. Your resources, emotional, mental, spiritual resources, it will just drift that. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to decide to do it. Whatever your heart loves the most, you will be drawn towards. In fact, some people put it even more strongly. Whatever you love the most, you will become like. You will become conformed to the image of that which your heart most loves. The deepest loves of our heart are the things that we worship, orientate our life around. And if that thing is not God, it is an idol. That's what an idol is in the simplest terms. Anything that our heart loves more than God. At the deepest level of our heart, not just emotions and feelings, deep, the deepest longings, the, the greatest love of our heart. If it is not the one true God, it is an idol. Anything that we worship, center our lives around, other than the one true God, that thing is an idol. And this is really hard to detect in our lives, in our modern culture. Really hard to identify. So just imagine this scenario. Let's say after church today, you go to Wendy's for lunch. All right, just imagine. And you're sitting at Wendy's, and at the table next to you, there's two people having lunch together. They're eating exactly the same thing. It's a big classic combo with cheese. Same, same meal, exactly the same meal. For one of them, they're just enjoying lunch. For the other one, they are engaging in idolatry. Now, how is that possible? How could you possibly tell? You can't. You know, the scary thing is probably even the one engaging in idolatry can't tell or doesn't want to know. But the Bible specifically says in Philippians, for some people, their God is their stomach. So you can make your own stomach an idol. You can make Wendy's an idol. You can make what you're really doing is making your physical appetite an idol. And, and it often happens, it starts out in a very healthy way. It starts out there's just a food or food in general that you like and you enjoy and you take pleasure in and that's good and that's normal. And then it's somehow at a certain point, maybe over time, there's a subtle shift in your heart. And the food that was just something that gave you enjoyment becomes an obsession. Something that you took pleasure in now becomes a compulsive behavior. 
And it starts to become your defining reality. And if you're honest with yourself, this may, this may apply to you, the food example. If you're honest with yourself, you think about it, you're actually losing your grip a little bit in that area of your life. You're losing some self-restraint. You're losing some control. It used to be that you kind of had that under control. You were managing it. You were the master of it. Now, not so much. Now you're kind of serving food rather than having it serve you. Maybe you're using food to mask other things. Maybe it's kind of a form of escapism. All those are signs that food has become an idol for you. And it's expressed in that Wendy's combo. Not that that's the point in and of itself, but for you, your stomach, your appetite, and food itself has become an idol. You see how subtly this happens. One person's lunch is another person's idol. Now, some of you, the dietitians in the room, are saying, well, all you need to do is just get rid of Wendy's, right? Or if you just didn't eat the junk food, then you'd be fine. So let's run another scenario. Let's swap the big classic double with cheese combo for a salad. All right, let's say it's not even a Wendy's salad now. Not, not even, it's from some other salady place. I don't know, do they even exist? Salad <laughs> places. So you've got a salad, fresh salad, homemade salad if you like, out of your gut. Everything good is in that salad, right? Nothing wrong with this food, full of nutrients. Is the problem solved? No. Because you can make an idol of a salad just as easily as you can make an idol of the big, the, the classic combo. We can make an idol of healthy food, good food, as much as we can make an idol of junk food. The type is not, is not, is not the issue. See, we look at the story of the golden calf and we assume that idols are only bad things. And we think, well, that golden calf should never have been made. It should never have come into existence. It is intrinsically evil. And so we can assume idols are only the things in our life that are intrinsically bad for us, and therefore if we just remove those from our life, we'll be okay. But in fact, that's not the case. I want to read you a quote by a guy called Tim Keller, who wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. He says, We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. So the field's wide open for idols. It can be health food, then starts off as just a healthy desire to eat well, for your kids to eat well, and then somewhere along the line it drifts into obsession and it consumes a disproportionate amount of your time and energy and emotional resources. It ends up becoming an object of worship and it displaces God as an object of worship. The good things, the better the thing is in your life, the more likely you are to make it an idol. The more valuable, the more joy it brings you, the more likely we are to put it on the throne. It's good to have a job, great to be employed, good to have work, but how easily we can make our work into an idol. And in our hearts we know what, we, what we're most passionate about in our lives is career advancement, career promotion, the expanse of the business, getting to where we need to be financially, whatever it is. And work has become an idol. Great to be fit, great to work out, great to go to the gym, but how easily that can become an idol and it becomes the defining center of our life. It becomes this consuming focus. Our mental and emotional energy is sucked in that direction and away from God. I remember the first job I had in a PR agency and I got a, after six months I had a performance review and I got a, a nice pay rise. And then six months later, had another performance review and got another pay rise. And Anna and I were just stoked. It was our first, my first year of working. Anna was still studying. Money was really tight. And we just, it just gave us a little bit of breathing space. It was awesome. 
And over those couple of years, as I got these pay rises, I just sensed something in my heart start to shift. This barely discernible shift in my heart. But I can see it more clearly now looking back on it than I could at the time. And what started as just appreciating a healthy pay rise became something that got a grip on my heart. It became a chain around my heart. It became something that started to drive me. Started to become a consuming focus of how I could move forward faster or get more of it or what we could do with the money. And I just, just sensed, in, in a way I find it difficult to even articulate, it, it got a grip on my heart. It turned my heart a few notches away from God and towards career, money, success. All good things in and of themselves, all fine things, but precisely because they are good things, we are prone to make them idols. And, and, and doesn't it just reveal to you how deceitful our hearts are? That we, I mean, we're all doing this all the time, aren't we? That we take these good things from God that he gives us, a job, a house, money. And we say, thank you very much, God, and I'm going to turn this into an idol. Just like the Israelites took off their gold earrings, cast them in the fire, and created a golden calf. We'll take the good things in life. We'll take the best things. And we'll make them God things. And we'll bow down and worship them. Maybe the saddest thing is, and some of you are doing this even as I'm talking, you justify it because we put nice names on it. We're incredibly good at rationalizing this. We never want to call idolatry idolatry. I mean, that just sounds so heavy. So we put other names, we put nice names on it. Instead of being able to honestly admit money is an idol for me, we just say, no, 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 no I'm into uh, good financial planning. No, I'm, no, it's about financial independence. We're just pursuing financial freedom. In fact, we even baptize it and call it good stewardship. And who wants to argue with any of that wonderful stuff? when it comes from a good heart. But from a heart looking for idols, it's nothing but greed. And we've got to be big enough to call it for what it is. Some of you even now, it's like you're arguing against what I'm saying and putting up excuses in your mind and convincing yourself, this, is, this thing's really not an issue in my life. I've got it under control. It's not really competing for God's attention. But in an honest moment of self-examination, you see it for what it is. It's an idol. And we're constantly creating idols. John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. You might not be a very creative person, but your heart is endlessly creative in coming up with new idols to worship. Endlessly resourceful. As soon as we get rid of one, another one comes up. There will always be things competing for our greatest allegiance, competing for the greatest desire of our heart. So I know I'm very aware of the tendency of this message to spiral downwards into a big guilt trip right about now. We're right on the precipice, aren't we? And if we're not careful, we're all going to slide down into self-pity and despair and gloom because we're all beating ourselves up right now about the idolatry in our lives, including me. What we need is hope, right? We've got to be lifted up. We need hope to believe that idolatry can be dealt with. And the good news is it has been through Jesus. I think the hope is right here. It's hinted at even in this story. Just come back to this narrative again. Look on later in the chapter. Moses has this little interaction with God. He comes back to God. He says to Israel, after he's destroyed the idol, after all that's happened, Moses says to Israel, I'm going to go up the mountain again and, and maybe, perhaps, I can make atonement for your sin. In other words, perhaps I can appease God and ask him to forgive you. So Moses goes up, meets with God again. And he says, God, what a great sin these people have committed. In verse 31, they've made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. 
And look at this offer Moses makes. But if not, blot me out of the book you have written. What's Moses doing? He's offering his own life. He's saying, take my life in place of theirs. Incredibly selfless thing to offer. But God says in verse 33, No, Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. In other words, it's not you, Moses. You're not the one who's done this. You, 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 you will remain standing. It's the others I'm going to deal with. And God does deal with them. He sends a plague. Some die by the sword, some die by the plague. God sends this punishment. And yet here in this interaction between Moses and God, we see a glimpse of the hope that is to come through Jesus, don't we? Can you hear the echoes? Can you hear the hints of what is coming down the track? As Jesus came into the world, he came, as it were, to the Father and made exactly the same offer. He said, take my life for the sin of these people. Us, not just Israel, collectively, humanity. Jesus came to the Father and said, I'll, I'll give my life. But don't blot them out of your book. And whereas the Father rejected Moses' offer, he accepted Jesus' offer. Couldn't, couldn't accept Moses' offer. Moses was a sinful man. He had his own sin to deal with before God. Couldn't be a sacrifice for someone else. But Jesus comes along, the spotless Lamb of God, and God says, I will accept this sacrifice for the, sin, for the idolatry of all people. And so Jesus hung on the cross, and he took your idolatry and mine upon himself. He died for all the ways that we've broken the first commandment and had other gods before God. All the ways in which we've broken the second commandment and bowed our hearts down before the golden calves we've made in our lives. All the things that you and I have made gods and put on the throne of our life, made our greatest love, allowed our hearts to run to and displace God. All those things, all that wickedness, God placed upon his precious son on the cross and Jesus died for it so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be free of idolatry, so that verse 33 would be reversed in our lives. Whereas God said to Moses, whoever has sinned, I will blot out. Now God says to you and I, even though you've sinned, I won't blot you out because of Jesus. Even though your sin is grievous, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Because your life is in the Son of God. Because we are forgiven in Christ, we're free in Christ. We're set free from all the idolatries of our heart. That's where we need to start. Is being forg- if you just run out of here and try and deal with the idols in your life, in your own strength, you're, you're whistling in the wind. We need to start by being forgiven through the shed blood of Christ for all our idolatries, confessing them, receiving grace in our lives, and thanking Jesus that he has paid our debt in full, carried our idols away. So we stand forgiven and loved by the Father because of the Son. So then, on that basis... God calls us to deal with the idols in our lives in a practical way. He doesn't look the other way. It's not that idolatry is no longer important because of Jesus. Now God gives us the strength of his spirit. He gives us the community of faith here to help us. And he says, I do want you to deal with these idols. God takes idolatry seriously. He's forgiven you in Christ. You're fully forgiven. You're absolutely free. You can't do this out of a platform of guilt and fear and shame. That is not the starting point. You've got to do this out of a platform of grace, on the foundation of grace. Now we look at our lives and we say, I don't want anything to have my allegiance but God. I don't want to lift up anything to a place that Jesus Christ should have in my life. I don't want to allow any idol to grab my heart away from Jesus. You've given him your allegiance and now we outwork that salvation in our lives by making him Lord and crushing our idols. 
And Israel had to do that. Take pretty drastic steps at times to crush and demolish their idols. And God calls us to do the same. He says, I want you to take those things in your life and not just deal with them in a, in a gentle kind of way. I want you to demolish those things that have become idols in your life. Now, that's not easy. Because as we've talked about, idols are not necessarily bad things. If it was just a case of getting rid of the things in your life that are bad things, that would be maybe manageable. But idols can be among the best things in our lives. Vital things. If you've made an idol out of food, you can't just stop eating. So what are you going to do? Well, we can't always remove idols from our lives. What we can do is reposition them. What we can do is reorientate our life away from those things. What we can do is limit the oxygen supply going to those things and then increase the oxygen supply going to God. So that means taking an honest look at your life and identifying those things that have become idols for you and then taking some practical steps. It might be, let's say your phone has become an idol. Okay, can happen, right? Some of you, <laughs> some of you just look down. All right? Some of you just put your phone away. This can happen. Easy, easy, easy. Your phone can maybe a particular app on your phone starts with face and ends with book could be a problem for you could be i mean not, not bad things no i'm not it's not anti-facebook but these things can become idols they can subtly i mean it, it sounds silly to even talk about it but in, in all honesty these things can become idols in our lives they can compete for our deepest allegiance with god if we're not careful maybe you need to take a practical step and say i'm going to limit the amount of time i've got my phone strapped to my body because i feel like when i don't have it it's like i'm missing a leg well, like I'm missing an arm. That's a sign that maybe it's become an idol. So you say, right, I'm only going to look at Facebook for 10 minutes in the morning, and then that's it. Or I'm not going to have the phone right beside me all the way through the evening, even if just for a season of your life. Restrict the amount of time that you are feeding that thing. Put some, put some boundaries around that thing. If you don't think you can stick to it, ask someone else to help you. In all seriousness, ask someone, oh, I'm not sure I've got the strength to do this. Right, could you just keep me accountable to this? I need to take a step because it's actually an issue in my life. I want to ask you to check up on me from time to time. Just ask me how it's going. It's okay to do that. It's okay to draw some brothers and sisters around you to help you in the battle. If food has become an idol in your life, you may need to limit the amount of money that is going towards those things. Put boundaries around your time. If it's a hobby, if it's buying guitar amps, if it's video gaming, whatever it is, you may need to set the budget. Give yourself some limits. Put some, make a plan. Don't just say, oh, hey, as the Lord leads me, I'm going to do No, no, make a plan. Be intentional in, in destroying the idols in your life. And I think the hardest part of all this is simply owning up to the fact that something has become an idol. Because honestly, some of you for the past 30 minutes have been justifying, 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 making excuses, make, arguing back, arguing back in your mind as to why this is not really an issue in your life. I just want to encourage you to own it, to just accept it. If God's putting his finger on something in your life, don't come up with 50 excuses why you can't possibly change it and this is just so necessary and no, God's still got my allegiance. But own it. And lift up and elevate those practices in your life that will draw you closer to God. This is the other side of idolatry. It's a two-sided thing. On the one hand, you limit the oxygen supply to the idol. On the other hand, you increase the oxygen supply to those practices that are going to draw your heart near to God. What are the things in your life that will connect your heart back to God? If it's wandered away, because you know one of the first things that happens, first sign of idolatry, your love for the things that draw you near to God grows cold. For being in scripture, for being in prayer, for being at church, gathering with your life group, 
taking communion, worshipping together, talking with God, your love for those things just grows cold. If some of you are in that space right now and you just feel like, you know, I just don't really have a love for those things, I just don't really have a love for God that I used to have and I don't really want to engage in any of these things, could be that somewhere else in your life there's an idol. May not be directly, may not be that you don't want to read the Bible because you want to play on the Xbox, but somewhere else in your life there may be something that's drawn your heart away. And now your love for Jesus is growing cold and the things that draw you close to Jesus. So decide today, I'm going to lift up those practices that anchor my heart back at the cross. I'm going to do it. When we take communion in a few minutes, one of the beautiful things about this is that each week as we gather and we do this and we take the juice and the bread, we're leading our heart back to the cross and we're saying, this is where your home is. It's not there with the idols. It's not out there. This is your home. Think of the words of that old hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing Sunday by Sunday. That's what you're doing as you spend time in Scripture, time in prayer. You're taking your heart. You're saying, God, here's my heart. I'm so easily drawn to other things. My heart is wicked. My heart is deceitful. My heart is rebellious. Here's my heart. God, take it and seal it. And keep it at the cross. And he will. As we lift up those practices and we put boundaries around the ways that our hearts are being drawn to other things. One of the most helpful things to do, and we're going to do this now, is to be still and pray the prayer of David. David prayed, search me, O God, and test my anxious thoughts. Try my heart and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, if you're willing to do that, God may just surface some issues in your life. We're just going to be still for a couple of minutes and allow the Holy Spirit just to shine his searchlight into your soul and just raise any issues that might be there. And I just encourage you, I plead with you, that if God puts his finger on something, maybe may something you're completely unaware of at this moment, but if God raised it, maybe you hadn't even thought of that thing as an idol before, but God puts his finger on something, I want to encourage you, don't drift into guilt and self-pity and feeling terrible. Just name it honestly before God. Just say, God, I, I didn't even realize this thing had begun competing with you. I didn't even realize this thing was, was on the throne of my life in the way that it was, but, but I can see now that it is. Just name it honestly and receive God's fresh grace for that. He's already forgiven you through Christ. The victory is already won. It's already yours in Jesus. So just bring it before God and then ask for his strength and his help in taking the steps that you need to take and commit honestly before him that you'll do whatever's necessary to get that idol off the throne, to lead your heart back to the cross and keep it there. God, we, we sense your spirit's conviction in our lives. Oh, we're such... Such great sinners. But Jesus, you are such a great saviour. Oh God, have mercy on us. Our hearts are so wicked and we barely even see it. Our hearts are just so easily led astray. But God, you just give us more grace. You just give us more grace. Where our sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. So God, we know that what the evil one wants to do in this moment is keep accusing us. 
and just lead us to condemnation. But God, we want to say, as your people this morning, we know there is no condemnation in Christ. Sinful though we are, though we are an idolatrous people, there is no condemnation for us because we are forgiven and free by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we realize this morning, God, that we need that grace far more than we ever thought we did. That the sin that we need cleansing from is not skin deep. It's deep. Our lives are shot through with idolatry. So we just come humbly before you in this time as we take communion. And we're just open and undone before you. And we name those things in our lives that are idols. And we receive your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness to cover over all of our sin. And then we say, Lord, with boldness and courage that we will take the steps that we need to to clear the stage of our lives so that only you are on the throne. And we will refuse to allow our hearts to make things that are not God into idols. We love you, Jesus. Thank you that you've given your life for us. Thank you for your endless grace. It's in your name we pray. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.